Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 12. In this episode, I talk with Crystal Alonzo and Rosanna Komosedu about change agents and implementation science. We discuss research on the diffusion of ideas and concepts, how your colleagues' orientation to change affects your ability to mobilize change, and implementation science. What is it? How does it influence implementation of evidence-based practice and what's your role in it? This conversation is part of a series on leading literacy change that I have created for a course I teach online at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. Today I have with me Rosanna Komosedu and Crystal Alonzo, and we will be discussing how to mobilize change and implementation science. And I will have them each start by introducing themselves. So, hi, um, thank you for having me today. Uh, my name is Rosanna Comesidu and I am a postdoc fellow uh, here at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. I work at the Cell Literacy Lab with Dr. Tiffany Hogan on a longitudinal study that follows up children from kindergarten to second grade and examines their language and reading development. And I am also very much interested into, in, a, in implementation science, which brought me here today. Hello, I'm Crystal Alonzo, um, and I'm excited to be here talking about these two topics that I find uh, very interesting and have been thinking about for many years. Um, I am currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Montana, working with Dr. Julie Wolter, um, also uh, as a project director like Rosanna on um, this longitudinal study looking at children with developmental language disorder um, and potentially with comorbid dyslexia. Crystal, when you spoke to my class on leading literacy change for several years, your the title of your talk was Finding Your Place on the Map to Effectively Mobilize Change. And as part of that uh, lecture, you brought in the, what was it called here, the Diffusion Innovation Model. So can you start out by telling us what is that model? Sure. Um, so it's actually... Um a study of research um, of diffusion of ideas and uh, concepts, and it actually spans many fields, um, such as public health and medicine, as well as sociology and education. And it's been around since the 1950s. And if anybody is interested, there is a book called The Diffusion of Innovations written by Everett Rogers. And although it is large, it's actually very readable so, and has lots of real world examples. So I would definitely encourage people who are interested in the topic to uh, go forth and look that up as well. But the diffusion of innovation at its most basic core can be defined as the process by which an innovation is communicated through certain channels over time among the members of a social system. So it's kind of a, a, a mouthful there, but um, more importantly, I think we need to know what an innovation is. And so an innovation is any idea, object, or practice that is perceived as new by members of the social system. And so I think this is really relevant to those of us in communication sciences and disorders, both as 
researchers or clinicians um, to think about the ideas or the clinical practices that we um, decide to use um, and learn about in our, in our uh, everyday practice. And then um, I think the communication by which that innovation is communicated to us is really important too, because we have things like mass media communication. And um, actually that includes things like radio or television or newspapers. So for those of us in our clinical field, those are our research articles that we're reading um, in journals to try to learn about new innovations in our field. Um, but then we also have those interper interpersonal communication channels too, right? So our peers, the face-to-face -face exchange that we have, and actually I would, um, also say that when we're taking coursework as students, um, it includes that interpersonal um, communication as well. And then finally, the interactive communication channel of, about how we learn about new innovations. And that really truly is the internet. And in our field specifically, that's kind of exploded recently in terms of social media and Facebook groups and blogs and podcasts such as this one. <laughs> um, so I think that that um, is certainly how we are communicating and learning um, as well as telling others of these innovations. Um, and then when we think about time, there is a process, there's an innovation decision process as to how we um, think about innovations and our decision as to whether or not we're going to adopt them and use them. Um, so I'll remind you again that when I'm talking about innovations, those are uh, practices, intervent interventions, curriculums, assessments that we decide to use in our everyday practice. And so that is certainly something that's going to happen over time, our decision to use something or not to abandon it. Um, so this, this yeah. model is a way for us as a field to think about how, what's the uptake uh, of new information and how is it adapted to the situations that we're in? Like you mentioned, like a new intervention or let's say a new test is published mm -hmm. and we're trying to make that decision, do we use it or not? Right. And for this course, thinking about leading change, yes. it's really less about you know, your individual decision maybe to choose to use a specific test or intervention and it's more about how you are a leader in the process of creating change, mobilizing change, as you said in the title. Yes. Um, and so it's thinking about the, the factors involved. But I just mentioned that there's kind of this individual, mm -hmm. right, desire to change or, or openness possibly to change. And, and you're thinking about your own self. Like for my practice, I'm choosing this specific test. That's under your decision-making auspice, right? But what about thinking about making change? How does a person's individual openness a responsiveness to innovation and change impact a leader's ability to make change at a system-wide level? Yes, I think that's a great segue into that last piece of the diffusion of innovation definition, which was looking at it through social systems. So um, the fact that we are not working in silos, even as an SLP, perhaps in a school, you might be that one SLP in that school, but you're working within a social system. Um, and so there really are key players that we need to think about. Um, and I know that there are um, has been some discussion in here um, with the Leading Literacy Change course where we talk about change agents um, and so how we're really trying to empower um, clinicians to feel like they're the change agents in their schools to lead the, the charge in bringing forth um, evidence-based practice related to literacy and language. Um, and uh, there are other key players that we need to consider as well. So there are people that we would also call opinion leaders. And so those are people who are able to influence others' attitudes um, or they have overt behaviors that informally um, kind of move the, the needle in a desired way. Um, and they kind of do it very frequently. So those are kind of people you look to. So when you think about yourself in your social system, um, 
most likely in a professional setting. You think about who are the people who are kind of the ones who are coming forth with new ideas, who are consistently, and that might be you. You might be thinking that's me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so um, who you're trying to constantly, you know, tell people of new things you've heard about. Um, there are also those gatekeepers, right? Because we work within systems where we like, um, Dr. Hogan said we're not always able to make those changes or decisions on our own. Usually there are others in the system who are the decision makers because they usually control access to information or critical resources, right? So in schools, we have to have these conversations with our administration um, to be able to implement something more system-wide. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so those are kind of the, our main key players I think that we want to think about. And then you also have to think about the, the rest of the, the groups, right? So we have um, what's called adopter categories. Um, and some of you may have heard this because actually this uh, idea of diffusion of innovation has also kind of taken over um, business and marketing and how um, innovations such as technology like cell phones or um, smart, uh, oh, what are those things called? Like Alexas and things like oh, that. Yeah, smart, yeah, home, yeah. smart home uh, yeah. gadgets yeah. Um, and those things. Like how, how did these actually get to market and kind of explode, right? So, um, so in marketing, they think about these too. And, and when they think about these different categories, they think about um, five different people essentially and, and how they fit into these categories. So the first are the innovators. And these are usually the people who are um, visionaries or risk takers, they're very venturesome, and they're eager to generate as well as to try new ideas. And um, that's really only about 2.5% of, of people. And then we have early adopters, which are respected, knowledgeable leaders. So those op opinion leaders that I was talking about earlier that we might find in our, in our professional systems. And they're usually open to adopting new ideas. And that's about 13.5% of the people. And usually if you get these two categories, that's the tipping point that you might hear in, in business terms of when something might saturate the market. If you can get those guys on board, we might get to then having more people to adopt this innovation. Um, so then you have the early majority and that's about 34% of people. And that's um, usually a follower rather than a leader, but they're very deliberate in their adoption decision. They're not just gonna do it just because it's the newest fad that's out there. Um, they're gonna consider that process before they make their decision. And then you have the late majority, which is the other 34%. Um, and that's, um, they're skeptical, they're cautious about adopting a new idea, but they're motivated to adopt because most likely peer pressure. These are the people who, for example, now have an iPhone, not because they really wanted it, but because it's ubiquitous. <laughs> and so they had to adopt and get on the smartphone train. Um, and then lastly, you have the 16%, which we call laggards. Um, and so they're traditional and suspicious of new ideas, and they're usually the last to adopt an innovation. And I think what's really important about these adopter categories is it is your normal bell curve, for those of you who are picturing it right now, um, but, you have different adopter categories for different concepts. So you might be a, an early adopter for technology because you love technology, but you might not um, be an early adopter for like the latest fashion trends, for example. Um, so it can vary, you know, depending on, on what you prioritize, what your needs are, um, and what's most important to you in terms of your values and beliefs. And so when it comes to curriculum, if you've, um, for example, worked in a school for a long time, you might be a little, and you've seen lots of trends and curriculum come through multiple times and fail and a new one come the next day, then you might be a little bit more hesitant. You're maybe more in the late majority, not really so eager to try the latest, hottest thing because, um, you know, you've seen things fail before. And so you just kind of, although I want people to think about these categories, we shouldn't try to put everybody in a box because it could just really depend on the context and um, the experience of people 
So it is interesting to think though, I could imagine <laughs> that you are a different category according to, as you mentioned, like maybe a, your context of technology versus fashion versus mm -hmm. maybe you're in the school system. But one thing you did point out though, too, is that you as a person could change even in a specific context, yes. you could change over time based yes. on your experiences. <laughs> Right. So maybe initially you would be an innovator and a risk taker and an early adopter. And then later, as you become, you know, experience more trends, you might become more of the late major majority or more skeptical over time. That's so it's, it's context and you as a person you know, changing. So as a leader, um, you think about the community you're trying to lead. So if you're a reading specialist and you want to adapt a new evidence-based practice and you feel confident it's the right decision, now your job is to get everyone else on board. So in doing so, thinking about your school, the, the stakeholders that you're involved with, the teachers, the administrators, the parents, everyone who's going to be a part of this change, it's helpful to think about the category they might fall into. Right, yes, and I think that's why finding yourself on the map is really good. So who are you in the context of where you're trying to make this um, diffusion happen? And who are those around you, actually? Um, and and whether they're going to be on board with you or, or ones that you'll have to work with a little bit more, um, but also getting to know um, how they'll probably approach the um, innovation decision process because there are stages um, to how somebody goes ahead and, and, and decides if they're going to actually implement and and truly implementation is not the the end goal it's actually the sustainability the confirmation that they'll continue using it even after implementing and not discontinue um, so yeah you need to try to figure out how everyone kind of falls also within those stages some people will be quicker to make those decisions on whether they're going to adopt something or not and some might need a lot of time and a lot of consulting and encouragement and so um, I do think context here is key actually for trying to get them um, for trying to, to be that change agent um, in your school as a reading specialist or as a speech language pathologist. You know, if you're trying to get uh, a seat at the table for the literacy, you know, for the mm -hmm. literacy team, which I think often sometimes I know for me, when I was a clinician in schools, that was something I had to do was try to uh, show why I should be part of the team and a change agent in this specific realm. So you talked about stages. What are the stages of the yes. innovation decision process that people are going through or the stages to confirmation? Great, well, so there are um, five key stages. And um, the first, which I actually think is a really interesting one, I, I look at these concepts both as a clinician, uh, both as a professor who would be training uh, future clinicians, but also as a researcher who wants to work with clinicians. And I think that these stages can actually um, look different at, for those different categories. But so um, the first is the knowledge awareness stage. Um, so it's becoming aware that a new innovation uh, product or practice exists. Um, so I'm going to go over all the stages and then I'm going to delve into a couple a little bit more. The second one is the persuasion stage. And it's usually um, when you're trying to develop an interest. Um, and usually you also develop a, an attitude towards whatever the innovation is. You haven't made a decision yet, but you start having a gut reaction to, is it favorable? Is it not so favorable? Do you want to learn more about it and trial it perhaps? Um, or are you already immediately kind of turned off by the um, new innovation? And then the third stage is um, the decision stage. And so this is where you're actually actively engaged in activities that are going to lead you to choose to adopt or to reject the innovation. And this might be more where we might see some trials um, 
for example, or more discussion perhaps with those who are trying to be the change agents and tell you more about the um, innovation for you to make the decision. The fourth one is the implementation stage. And this is typically when you are trying to um, say that you're going to use this on a much larger scale. So you'll not just trial a part of it, but you might actually try to implement the full um, assessment or intervention innovation in this case. Um, and then finally is this confirmation stage, which um, is where you're actually going to decide to continue to adopt or you might be a layer adopter. Perhaps you decided to reject it in the implementation stage, but you saw others around you who were implementing and they liked it. So now you're going to later on adopt it or you adopted it and decide you want to discontinue. It's not working for you. It no longer serves your needs um, or you're going to continue to reject it even while you see other people around you using it. And so those are the five main stages. But um, I think for me, some of the most powerful stages, which is so very interesting, are in the beginning, the knowledge awareness stage, because for those of us who are um, actively engaged in research programs, um, we're very much at the uh, stage of mostly trying to let people know about our innovations, um, and that's usually through publications, right? So we're publishing our research and letting um, clinicians know about it. There's also CEUs or presentations at conferences or workshops um, to try to tell people about what intervention or assessment we've we've uh, trialed in our research and now want them to go ahead and do. But that um, stage kind of tends to be at this beginning stage. It's really just more an awareness or a knowledge. We're telling them about them. Um, we really aren't digging yet into the how-to knowledge, right? So that's really when we get a little bit more into perhaps the consulting with schools um, and clinicians on how to actually use this. So it's not just the, here I gave you the instructions really quickly, now you've read, here's the appendix that has the actual materials, you're gonna go do it. Um, but instead, this kind of continuous um, interaction that's happening between clinicians and the innovator, essentially the researcher, um, as well as principles um, knowledge too. So people actually have to understand what you're talking about in those papers. They have to know the theories, the methods behind it to truly grasp it. And we're hoping that their um, masters or, or graduate level certificate training is going to be enough principles or theories, uh, theoretical foundation for them to understand what we're saying in these articles for them to go forth and actually implement. So there are a lot of stages there in terms of the awareness and knowledge that we need to make sure our clinicians um, understand before they can actually move forward and, and use these with potential sustainability, right? Because otherwise we're gonna lose them after they have tried to implement and it didn't work because they couldn't do it um, to the level that maybe what it was stated in our in our research articles. Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting to think about in the context of creating change. And I will say as a scientist, um, in terms of generating knowledge, I was taught to you know use the scientific method. So you have a hypothesis, you have a theoretical framework, and then you conduct a study and if, even if it's a treatment study, you conduct the treatment study to look at a causal effect, and you then you know show that there's this causal effect, and there's it, it kind of stops there a lot of times. So it's like, okay, I've shown that this is effective, but there's not a sense of how is this going to get into practice, that you know that filling that gap of the research to practice. So, what do you think people are doing, as scientists in particular, to try to fill that gap now? 
Um, I think um, one thing that we can do to fill that gap is um, be involved more in implementation science. And implementation science, what it does, it helps you to identify all those factors, whether they are facilitators or barriers uh, that affect how the implementation process is done in an actual real life setting, whether that is a school setting or a medical setting. Is implementation science something that is radically different than what treatment researchers are already doing? How would treatment researchers think about the implementation, implementation science field in relation to what they're doing now? I think it's one step forward uh, from treatment research. Um, if you think that treatment research is usually happening under very well controlled conditions, um, the difference with, with something that is happening in real life con uh, conditions is that there are so many interacting factors and systems that affect the quality of your work and whatever you're trying to implement and evidence-based practice. So I think it matters where you conduct the research and what do you involved in that research to examine the effectiveness of a program. So that will be, um, as I see it, the main difference between bringing it from uh, the lab to the actual context. And that's where the implementation science frameworks can help us. Is implementation science something that, I've heard this said, so I'm just getting your thoughts on this. So is implementation science something that has to happen after you've done treatment research? Um, no, it can actually happen uh, Alongside treatment research, um, we do have specific study designs that accommodate that. Uh, we call them hybrid designs. And what hybrid designs do is they actually look simultaneously uh, effectiveness uh, research and implementation science in a real life context. So if someone asked you, um, you know, what is implementation science? What's the primary goal? What types of studies really comprise implementation science? What would you say? I think I would define implementation science as uh, the scientific study of uh, the context and the factors uh, that affect implementation process. And the different study designs uh, um, that exist under the implementation science frameworks are we have, um, well, I will start actually with the core of the implementation science. Um, Qualitative research, it, it leads implementation science. Um, and by qualitative research, I mean observations, interviews, focus groups, surveys. And this was actually very surprising for me, for someone like me and my background, because I do not have background in qualitative research. Uh, and it definitely pushes me to get training um, in qualitative research methodology so I can be able to conduct that work. Uh, however, we also have mixed methods research that combines both qualitative and quantitative, and this is where the hybrid approaches comes in because in hybrid designs, we have uh, the quantitative aspect, which is uh, assessing the effectiveness of an evidence-based program. And we have the uh, qualitative aspect where assessing the implementation process of that specific program. Are there different types of hybrid uh, studies? Yes, there are uh, three types of hybrid studies and they differ based on the emphasis that is put uh, on either effectiveness or implementation science or both. So we have hybrid design, hybrid design one, which uh, focuses more on the effectiveness side uh, and has implementation, collecting data on implementation side uh, um, 
implementation science. We have hybrid design two, uh, which puts equal emphasis on both aspects. And we have hybrid design three, uh, which shifts the dynamics and you have more emphasis on the implementation science part uh, while you're doing effectiveness uh, studies. What do we know about implementation um, and the process of implementation based on past implementation science studies? Um, so there's a statistic actually that shows up in many of the publication that mentions that it takes on average uh, 17 years uh, for 14% of evidence-based practice to be actually applied uh, adequately in a real-life context. So that, that sounds a little bit shocking. <laughs> wow, you can't see this, listeners, but my jaw is on the ground right now and I'm, I'm disheartened. Yeah. Uh, so um, it depends where you are, uh, in which field you are while doing implementation science. Implementation science has a strong grasp in medical field health professions, but unfortunately not so much in communication science and disorders, but we are working on it uh, and uh, things are happening and we're moving forward to bring more people to get interested in implementation science. I definitely want to hear about those uh, initiatives and what's moving forward, especially in our field. But before I do that, uh, Crystal, in a recent paper you have with um, Schlieb and Morris, you provide an example of a hybrid three study of school-based literacy intervention. So can you describe that study for us so we can get a, a, a deeper sense of what a hybrid study looks like in practice? Yes, I'll uh, just quickly go over it, but for more detail, I would definitely recommend um, the article because what we do is actually break down two different case studies, one in adults in medical settings and two in um, pediatrics in a school-based setting. And it is loosely based on um, the Language and Reading Research Consortium work that uh, was done uh, by multiple sites, including Dr. Tiffany Hogan here at MGH Institute and in the University of Nebraska, um, where we went into schools and did a literacy-based Based, um, a language-based literacy intervention. Um, and so at, it actually was considered a randomized control trial. And we went into multiple schools, uh, taught teachers. I was a doctoral uh, research fellow um, on that project during my PhD training. And so we went into schools, we trained teachers to use this curriculum, and um, then went ahead and um, and provided lots of measurements so that we could then see student outcomes on how effective the intervention was. But in addition to that, and why this actually is a hybrid study, is that we um, also asked teachers about, um, so we had lots of surveys about fidelity, about um, social validity, how this actually would fit in the context of what they're doing every day, um, as well as whether they felt um, it was easy to implement or not. And so in reality, that um, study itself was um, more of a hybrid one, I would say, but the case study that we do for this paper is a hybrid three in that it focuses a little bit more on the implementation aspect. So in this case, we would already know that the language-based uh, literacy curriculum is already for the most part effective in smaller trials that we've already done, but now we're trying to see um, if in the real world context it's actually um, able to be implemented or not. And so we used the re-aim framework because like Rosanna mentioned, there are several frameworks for implementation science. Uh, but we liked this one because re-aim uh, is essentially an acronym for reach, effectiveness, adoption, implementation, and maintenance. Um, 
and I just want to also mention, just because I love the like synchronicities of these things, I feel like this framework very nicely kind of follows this diffusion of innovation uh, principle as well that I was talking to you about in terms of the adoption, the inner uh, innovation decision uh, process. And so the first question that we want to know in terms of the effectiveness of this trial for a school-based literacy intervention is the reach. So um, how do I reach the target population? Is that targeted population actually being reached? And so um, you would measure how many school districts within the state agreed or did not agree to participate in the study. And then you would follow up. And that's what makes this more the, um, the hybrid three more focused on implementation. You'd be following up with interviews with those school districts who said they did not want to participate as to why they didn't want to participate. And to follow up with the, with the uh, schools and districts that decided they did want to participate as to, again, why they chose to participate. So it is, like Rosanna mentioned, involving that qualitative methods aspect of not just accepting or not accepting that people are participating, but then also trying to figure out the reasoning for why they are and aren't, because that could give us insight into barriers or facilitators for, for um, using this intervention. Then the second one is effectiveness in re-aim. So how do I know that my intervention is effective? And this is, again, pretty um, standard with what we know as researchers on how effectiveness actually works. Um, and so measuring in traditional senses, I think, whether um, the intervention was able to be used or not. But then also asking, in addition to that, the effectiveness of the implementation of the intervention. So this is when you're asking who gave the intervention? Was it always given by a teacher or were paraeducators used um, to give this intervention? Um, what, you know, this is when we're then looking at the fidelity or the potential for reinvention too, because perhaps they were using the um, intervention in a, in a different way than was prescribed by um, the researchers. And the third one is how do I, uh, is adoption. And this is how do I develop organizational support to deliver my intervention? And so here you're assessing the adoption trends of the intervention by looking at the uptake in the various schools. So was there attrition? Were there attrition rates? Did people say they wanted to adopt it and then discontinued using it? Um, you would also want to have observations in the classroom again to assess if the intervention is being used and to what level of fidelity. Um, and then the fourth part of REAIM is implementation. So here is how do I ensure that this intervention is being delivered properly? So you're assessing the implementation in an actual classroom during under real world contexts. Um, and so you're collecting data on various time points, conducting those interviews and focus groups, um, again, to determine the barriers and facilitators. So this is, you know, workload time is increasing by having to implement this new intervention. Are they getting the support they need from administration to be able to do this new intervention? Um, and then finally, um, maintenance. And I think this is the key that maybe a lot of people kind of forget about this last part. <laughs> so how do I incorporate the intervention so it's delivered over the long term? I think the goal for all of us sitting around this table right now is that we don't just want people to adopt these innovations and interventions and assessments or just general clinical practice um, practices, we want them to actually be sustainable. We want it to be over the long term. And so this is a key ingredient for trying to figure out, well, what will make that um, maintenance occur? So you want to assess the maintenance of the intervention effects um, and the implementation in the classroom, perhaps six or 12 months after you've actually done your study. And how is it now being used? Because again, this is the potential where there could be a reinvention. Now that they're not being as closely consulted or interacting with researchers, they could be changing um, the intervention from what it was originally designed to be. 
which could be good or bad um, and is worth still the discussion and the um, noting when trying to figure out if, if this is a sustainable innovation for somebody to be using. And I think uh, the point on uh, maintenance or sustainability is a great one and often missed um, because uh, although it appears uh, under in different frameworks, it always shows up at the end. It's something that we always need to think from the beginning and work on that from the beginning at the, during each stage while we move forward with our implementation efforts. Yeah, and I want to I want to tell you about my experience on this project because I was trained, I would say, more classically in treatment research in the little training I had in treatment research. So I didn't have that much training in it. Uh, but when I did when I did learn about it and have some training, it was more traditional in the sense of looking at a cause and effect relationship. Working on the Lark project was so uh, informative for me, and it showed me how you have to have this idea of sustainability and what we call scale up or you know mm -hmm. getting it to out in a broader much broader concept text you have to have that mindset at the very beginning of your study yeah. and oftentimes and when i think about the way i was trained i had this sense that you work on this cause effect relationship and then you you so you've isolated you say okay this is a malleable factor i'm going to be able to change it in a treatment setting and then i want to start with the most sterile treatment setting and i want to you know, show that effect, and then I'm going to go, you know, further and further from the sterile, I guess. But in doing that, the mindset is really about, the purpose is really about that cause-effect relationship when you have that approach. When I worked on LARC, from the very beginning, we, we thought, from the very beginning of even developing the intervention, we wanted to have an intervention that would be used in the schools and would be sustained. And so the way we structured our, our um, grant and our project was around that. So when we, for instance, um, initially started looking in the literature for malleable factors to create this intervention, we used teacher focus groups right from day one mm -hmm. to say what's happening right now in the classroom. It's not always just going to be in the literature. Like we traditionally think like I'm just going to read all these studies and all of these studies are going to tell me what to do, what works to increase for, in this example, language comprehension. But actually, you know, people are doing this every single day in the classroom and they're having some effects and that's great and we hope they are. And so we would go into the classroom and we would look at what's called business as usual. So that's what's happening in the classroom now. And we would talk to teachers, we'd see what's happening, we say what's effective. So it's a marriage of what we see in the literature with what we saw in the classroom from minute one that helped us to start to create the treatment plan, the um, scope and sequence of the treatment, uh, we, you know, basic decisions that you think about are driven when you're doing treatment research in a traditional way are really driven by um, convenience and what is already set up. So if you're doing a treatment study and you're, let's say you're working in the clinic and you go, well, the kids can only come two days a week, so I'm going to make the treatment two days a week, 45 minutes. Well, that's just not really what's happening mm -hmm. in the schools. And that's a big problem, I think, that's happening in the, in the research. And so it's like that creates this even further gap. Because then it's like, I published a research site, showed something very effective, but I saw the kid one-on-one, -on -one, 45 minutes, two times a week for a year. And then the clinician is left to say, okay, well, how am I going to implement this? And what are the key effective aspects? You know, what's the critical factors associated with that implementation? So what we tried to do is very early on, again, evoke all the stakeholders, the administrators, the teachers, look at the context of the school to help us make decisions. And here's an example of decision. We decided we'd make the curriculum be a year. That was something we wanted and, and frankly had to do with budget. But we had a lot of decision points within that year. So how many times were we administering this per week? 
one decision we made. We initially wanted to do it every day of the year. You know, it's a, it's a curriculum. We talk to the schools. What we realized very early on is that was unrealistic. So what we did is we said we have a lesson, four lessons a week, which gives one day where inevitably there's a field trip, there's a fire alarm, there's other priorities. And so that you could fit in that room. The other adaptation we made is that we had four units to span the year and we realized very early on that the last unit had to be shorter. So the last unit, instead of being seven weeks, was only four weeks because there's end of year testing. So we couldn't fit it in to the whole year. So these are decisions we made right up front to try to, uh, you know, um, give, it, give this intervention a better shot at being adapted and sustained within the schools. We also thought a lot about the materials we used mm -hmm. and how attainable those were materials were. We tried to think about schools that had lots of resources, schools that had little resources. We tried to think about, for instance, in the teacher training model to train up on the intervention, we created an online module because we realized that there could be uh, schools in the future that aren't able to come, you know, and that takes a lot of um, a lot of person powers to do it. And I think that's another aspect that's, that we haven't talked about as much, but it's critical is the funding issue. So when you're thinking about scale up, you know, we could create an amazing intervention that has takes all these resources and has a one-on-one -on -one training, you know, um, to get the intervention to fidelity, but that's not gonna work in the future because then the grant funding runs out and the scientists to maintain their research productivity to keep their jobs, continue on to do other grants and that project is you know, often left unless they have more funding and that takes time. And so I think for me to see how this played out in a real life context was so informative. And, and I laughed because I, I didn't realize I was doing implementation science until I learned more <laughs> about what it was. And I, really, and I thought, oh, I am doing that. Wait, I did that. Uh, the other thing we did was you know, we had an idea from the literature and from our own philosophical views of education that the lessons we created would not be scripted. We wanted to empower teachers, uh, train them to have the flexibility to implement this le these lessons. And we got so much pushback from teachers and <laughs> they wanted scripting. And it really felt kind of dirty to us. Like, oh, what are we going to tell you exactly what to say? But what we learned is that that was part of the scaffolding. We should have known, like teachers needed that scaffolding. Mm -hmm. They wanted scripting and then they could kind of go off script a bit. But that scripting was needed initially, especially. And then the other thing we did is we looked at fidelity um, and how, you know, how, what were the key components that were given? And we found something quite interesting early on is that we had five components of the lesson and we had an open, like a you know, hook, kind of hooking the kids in. We had this close to wrap it up. In the middle, we had this uh, gradual release of responsibility. I do, we do, you do, common approach used in schools. And what we learned is that if, you know, inevitably it was 30 minute lesson, but sometimes it would take longer. And what we learned is that if the teachers that would just skip ahead and go to the close, that those outcomes for children were more effective than if they just stopped abruptly. And these are the things that we learned by allowing some flexibility and talking to teachers and having those focus groups. And so I have um, more of a sense of, of the, the idea that scientists have to change the way they think about treatment research right up front. It's not the, I thought implementation science was what you did at the end, mm -hmm. right. when I first thought about it, you know, before I did, had this experience. And I think that that is actually correct. When you look at the traditional pipeline for research, it does go clinical effectiveness trials and then implementation mm -hmm. science research. And actually it's this idea of this hybrid that is actually trying to bring them together to happen at the exact same time. Um, 
slash also thinking about about it beforehand, right? So not just waiting until the end. And I think that that is um, the key ingredient here because of the fact that I think personally that it's just a very hard pill to swallow that we think that if we create these wonderful interventions um, that and then go tell clinicians about them, that they're just going to be able to implement them to fidelity forever and always. Yeah. I think that the context of um, the context of being in a school inherently are going to be different. It's such a heterogeneous population. There's no way we can expect that the intervention, even if I did do it in a school, is going to be the same at school B down the street. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be a completely different context with different barriers and facilitators. And so th there has to be this um, flexibility, this agility to these interventions or this potential for reinvention of these interventions and assessments, because um, there's no way that it'll, it'll be able to just completely be a copy to copy from each school to each school and that it will work, right? Because everyone will have different contexts. Um, yeah, and uh, I completely agree with you, Crystal. Um, and I think we've seen that this year, especially the past year with our work here uh, with some of our local schools, um, we uh, seek partners uh, for our research programs. And um, after being involved in several discussions with them, we did realize that we cannot just go in and take a specific program practice and tell them this is what it is this is how you apply it we have to sit down with them and understand their situations because we've been working with some of the most um poor schools in the district uh with um high ELL population uh so they have different things that they uh go um through uh, they have different barriers uh, and and different facilitators um so that was a i think a very a good eye-opening experience for us because then we had to step back and say okay how can we help you to take this evidence-based program and adapt it to your own context which goes back to the reinvention re mm -hmm. piece that you mentioned um and you know um benefit uh students and uh the uh school staff um so it, it is definitely something that we always need to keep in mind um no matter how much evidence uh and how much research you have about a specific program in practice you don't actually really know how uh it works when if you don't go to that context and apply it and your one school can be different from the other school and from the other school your one clinical practice uh setting could be different from the other one so you need to be open and ready to reinvent uh and uh, be patient because it takes time to uh, understand that context and apply that specific program to that specific context so specificity is a very it's a key component here uh, and uh, we we need to remember that I've been thinking a lot about um, myself and my own like self-assessment of where I fit on the adapter, you know, characteristics. And I think, uh, you know, as scientists, you know, we have to think about, you know, what are what's our training, and we tend to want to gravitate to what makes us feel very comfortable. Yes. And we're comfortable in the scientific method. We've trained on it. We're comfortable writing research articles. Uh, we're comfortable. Uh, writing grants that uh, really test certain hypotheses and that's taken so many years and we really hone a practice in that way. And then we also become enculturated to what gets us moving forward in our career. So one, uh, and, I, and so we have different currency than what is happening in the school. So our currency as scientists is we are, we have to publish, 
uh, articles. We have to fund our doctoral students. We have to present at conferences. We have to get grants. This is what we do to maintain our careers as long, and, and we balance that with service and teaching. And so that's what we do kind of on a daily basis. Contrast that with schools if we're working on school-based interventions. So what they focus on on a daily basis has a lot to do with school, school culture, understanding the state and federal mandates. Um, they're, at the heart of it, of course, is improving student outcomes and developing children that are you know, um, meeting their highest potential. And so they have different pressures compared to the scientists. And so it's easy to kind of just separate yourself and say, well, I'm going to do the science mm -hmm. and that's what I'm going to do. And I remember when I was a doc student, I asked um, someone in the field who had a really a very scientifically effective program. And I said, um, I'm just so surprised that people aren't doing this in the school. Have you thought about doing school-based studies? And she was only doing clinic studies. And she said, you know, that's not my job. My job mm -hmm. is to do this. And then there will be other people that do the translation. And I think that was the model that was taught. Uh, but one thing that I've tried to do to have a bigger impact and to think in this way is, of course, learn more about implementation science. Uh, think about it from the beginning, but also just become comfortable being uncomfortable. Because it's such an uncomfortable experience to have to sit and really listen to um, all the stakeholders and to try to, it, it's uncomfortable because learning is painful and you have to do new things. And, and it's also uncomfortable because you wonder if it's going to be a good payoff in the end. And how are you going to get this funded? How's it going to work? And you know, frankly, doing this podcast was really uncomfortable, but it met, met the purpose I had, which was to try to, to help bridge that gap in some possible way um, that's, that, that meets the desire of the people I'm working with. So with students, you know, they're the ones that convinced me to do this, and, and I'm glad I did, but it was something I hadn't thought of doing. Um, so it was that, yeah, that kind of interaction, that two-way communication that made the biggest difference. Uh, but I think that you know, the newer generation of scientists yourselves Crystal and Rosanna are you know able to take this approach and incorporate it from minute one and still hopefully get that currency that you yeah. need right so yeah. you still get the publications you still get dissemination yeah. it's still you're still getting funding but you're able to do this in a way that hopefully will right from minute one not take 17 years yes. to get in for 14 percent for 14 percent oh it's even worse uh, to get it in the classroom so I think that's really important. And speaking of uh, new investigators, so what is ASHA doing right now, Crystal? I know you're involved in a committee. Can you tell us about what is ASHA doing to promote implementation science to help reduce the 17 years <laughs> to 14% of research? Um, yeah, so I am currently a member on uh, an ASHA committee that is affectionately called CRISP, um, and um, it stands for Clinical Practice Research, Implementation Science, and Evidence-Based Practice. And um, we have a collection of um, different scientists in the field, as well as um, some who work clinically, um, to actually come together and discuss kind of the state of our field in terms of evidence-based practice. And so those statistics of 17-year pipeline and only 14% are actually being, you know, um, implemented and, and changing clinical practice, as well as the fact that like how much is being published in ASHA art, in ASHA journals that are actually clinical practice research and not um, basic science or uh, translation science um, are, are all questions that we tackle on a regular basis in our meetings. Um, 
and trying to figure out how best we can help support um, clinicians who are eager to implement evidence-based practices, um, but perhaps are also struggling to figure out, well, what is evidence-based? How do I access this? You know, paywalls are another thing that we always um, are thinking about. Um, and, um, and then also, how can we support scientists who also want to do this clinical practice research and implementation science, um, which clinical practice research has been in our field uh, of CSD for a long time, but it, it hasn't always been um, as supported as we'd like in early careers. People kind of have always said, oh yes, do treatment research, do intervention work, clinical practice research, but after, after tenure, because of that currency that Dr. Hogan was just talking about um, in terms of, you know, you gotta get the funding, the publications out first because intervention work can take such a long time. You just heard 17 years. <laughs> so in, in, in the traditional sense, that was kind of the, the framework that people thought about intervention work um, and so the implementation science side is now kind of shifting that, um, that perspective, that it doesn't have to take 17 mm -hmm. years, that it can be shortened, that it can be done early career. Um, so Chris really does have a mandate to try to um, get more PhD students, early career uh, scientists into clinical practice and implementation science work um, so that we can start to close this gap, this research um, research to practice gap and um, there are several initiatives that they've done a lot has been primarily if we think about the diffusion of innovation at the awareness knowledge stage um, we've been trying to get the word out there have been lots of um, presentations done at asha for example the asha uh, convention every year we've had some special issues that have been um, published and supported if not written by many of the members on the uh, asha crisp committee and um, and then we've also now started to support some funding mechanisms for trying to support this kind of work. So the Ash Foundation um, recently supported a researcher clinician collaboration grant. Um, I think they funded three or four this last year, which is um, a new mechanism. And then um, the Distance Award, which is actually trying to pair current CSD researchers who are interested in implementation science with um, implementation science researchers from other fields, um, some very big names who have kind of pioneered this work um, to go to a conference and essentially write proposals uh, for implementation science work because there are there are funding mechanisms for this work in implementation science, just not so much in our CSD field. It tends to be in, in other um, medical um, and healthcare profession-related mechanisms. And so um, I know that we talk every month <laughs> about about this topic and how we can help support uh, the association and, and its members, both clinicians and uh, and scientists, um, because I think we're all in service of trying to help move forward clinical practice um, so that we can improve those client and patient and, and student outcomes. And so um, it's just really, it is like Dr. Hogan said about getting, com it's trying to kind of, again, find your place on the map for mobilizing change. That's, that was the title of this lecture I gave for many years of, of you just kind of figuring out where do you fall um, in, this, in this kind of ecology of, um, of moving science forward to improve outcomes for, for our patients and clinicians. And so trying to decide how tolerant are you of risk taking and uncomfortableness? You know, what's your appetite for conflict and change? Um, how deep are your ide ideological roots and how open are you to questioning them? Um, and, and that's okay. We need all the 
key, we need all the categories of adopters and we need all the different key players. Um, and I'm just excited to be at the table to be talking about it, really. And, and I like too, uh, you know, I, I think what's great about it too, um, and we haven't emphasized as much yet, is that there is this relationship between the researcher and the clinician. So this yeah. is, this is not where um, your you know, clinician's in a passive role waiting for the researcher. Yes. Um, no, and the clinician doesn't, you know, is I think, um, you know, many times can feel like they don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And this is the opposite. So the voice is loud and clear and is, you know, it's a two-way proposal. So let's say, you know, now people are hopefully <laughs> interested after hearing this podcast and learning more about implementation science. Rosanna, what's out there in terms of initiatives that are existing outside of ASHA um, and what are some more resources that people could go to to learn more about implementation science? Yeah, there's several uh, resources and initiatives outside of ASHA uh, and those I think will be listed uh, under the resource list for this episode. So we do have a few in, this, in the United States, uh, for example, the National Implementation Research Network at North Carolina Chapel Hill. We also have the Active Implementation Research Network. We have uh, the Colorado Research and Implementation Science Program. Um, there, is, there are a lot of resources under the Cancer Institute. Uh, and we also have um, international resources, such as the NIH uh, Fogarty International Center. Uh, there is a global implementation science initiative that holds a yearly conference where um, international professionals who uh, work uh, um, uh, in implementation science uh, come together and they share uh, opinions and uh, discuss about new directions. And there's, I think, also an international journal on implementation science. Uh, so we do have plenty of resources, which is a good thing because we are definitely behind in the field of communication science and disorders, but we have a lot of resources outside that we could rely on and bring in our field and adapt them uh, for our purposes. And also, you know, I mentioned the LARC study, it was funded by the Institute of Education Science and their funding mechanism really uses implementation yeah. science. So if researchers have been funded um, by the Institute of Education Science, they have to meet the proposal guidelines, include the stakeholders um, and include them in the process mm -hmm. of developing these interventions with the idea of sustainability. And NIH, National Institutes of Health, has, um, very, has strong initiatives too for implementation mm -hmm. science. So as we wrap up, I wanted to um, highlight a few uh, kind of final points. And one is there's a fantastic article in Journal of Speech-Language Research, GSLHR, by Natalie Douglas and her colleagues. And she has, offers five ideas of how researchers can use knowledge from the field of implementation science to enhance their program of research. And I would say these ideas also apply to clinicians that want to enhance their evidence-based uh, research uh, practices. So number one was apply implementation science theories, frameworks, and models to your research. And I would argue uh, that you would apply those models very early in your research program as you're working towards intervention studies. Um, the next one is to um, use these uh, models to speed up the implementation process, incorporating hybrid research designs right up front so that you consider the stakeholders and the environment and um, consider every the um, you know scalability as I mentioned the example for LARC right up front in your process, and that leads to the third idea, which is to make sure you engage all stakeholders in that research process right up front. So science isn't done in a silo, but it's a, a two-way street between researchers and clinicians. 
The next one is connect to implementation science agencies and networks. So following up on some of the initiatives and training opportunities and resources that, that Rosanna mentioned. And then evaluate treatment fidelity in your treatment research. So as a researcher, making sure that you attend to these components of what's not only how well are, are uh, you know, clinicians implementing a research that you, or intervention that you created, but why are they not implementing it? You know, if there's low fidelity, why? And can the treatment be adapted to increase fidelity? Um, and then also as a, as a clinician, if you're trying to implement something evidence-based and you're not able to do it, why? What are the barriers and how can that change the way you approach the, the gap in research to practice? I definitely recommend this article by Natalie Douglas and her colleagues, and I do like how she ends the article uh, and emphasizes why implementation science could be beneficial for our field. She talks about um, identifying research priorities, reducing um, health care disparities, increasing accountability and quality control. Uh, she talks about improving clinician um, competence and satisfaction, um, and also, of course, improve patient and student outcomes. But what I really like about this article is how she answers her own question. Um, we the article the article's title is "Implementation of Science: Buzzword or Game Changer." And uh, I definitely agree with Dr. Douglas. It is a game changer. It's not a buzzword. And I would say it is a game changer only if it's correctly done, uh, because this is a very complex and uh, matter. Uh, you're no more in your well-controlled um, lab or uh, setting. You go into a very complex uh, real-life context where multiple systems are interacting, and you're basically disturbing uh, that setting. So we need to be very careful how we approach this, but it definitely has a great potential to improve that research to practice gap. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rosanna and Crystal. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.